0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago, and I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt from San Diego. We get the best of Rob today. He's uh, showing his true colors a little under the weather, uh, but from uh, the bed in his house, he's he's joining us and uh, going to participate. How are you doing there, Rob?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. I uh, don't feel so hot, but uh, I look forward to doing the show every week, so even if I'm under the weather, I'll get up for my nap uh, in bed and try to make sure that I'm, I'm here to discuss Grateful Dead and Canvas policy.
0: It's always fun. Not worth sleeping through, I would agree with that. Um, and we got some good stuff going on today, uh, some really interesting stories. We have acknowledged that the uh, we are now uh, well within the uh, 50th anniversary of Europe 72, which we are going to get to one of these weeks or maybe a couple of weeks depending on how many of those shows we want to uh, focus on. But the precursor to Europe 72 is an album that Bob Weir put out, and that album is called Ace. It was his first solo album. The, there's eight songs on the album. Seven of them wound up in the Dead's regular repertoire, and we'll get to the one that didn't in a minute. As a quick introduction here, Dan, why don't you go ahead and, and spin our uh, the clip from our first tune from Bob Weir's Ace from 1972, 50 years old. for anyone uh, who saw the dead in the uh well really throughout but certainly when i was first starting to see him in the early to mid 80s uh, greatest story ever told was played quite a bit usually right at the beginning of the show although i have to say rob in all the years i saw it i never heard it with bobby ripping into a big roar like that like he does on this album uh Uh, right before he gets started so uh, although maybe that's just his way of celebrating since this is the first song on the disc but uh, either way he's full-throated on that one
1: yeah he is it's interesting to point out that originally the opening line of that song was Moses come riding up on a guitar so it wasn't a quasar and they shifted it you know right before they actually put on the album so it's a controversy whether or not they should have stuck with the original lyric but you know it's such a great way to to kind of come into it more importantly it's such a great way to announce like his solo album, but still being in many ways, a grateful dead record because, you know, Keith's piano playing is so obvious. Don's background singing is so obvious. It's basically like another, um, you know, sort of the way Garcia did, uh, with his first album, That in many ways, it's just a grateful dead album with, you know, uh, the artist, the individual sort of choosing who's going to play on which songs and who's not without
0: making it a true grateful dead record. But, to your point, you know, everything ended up in the canon but one song. And what's uh, what I like, I was reading, you know, and, and Phil Lesh's comment was, well, we knew it was Bobby's project, but, uh, you know, from time to time, we'd all pop into the to the studio and say, hey, how's that one tune coming, Bobby? Oh, boy, you need somebody to play bass for you on this one, or, you know, and eventually they would all go in there and do it, but uh, yeah, it's great, and um, I, I really, really love that album. It's uh, it's a fun solo album. It's a great Bobby album, and uh, we'll have fun talking about it in a little, in a little while hopefully with the uh the same enthusiasm that uh that mr weir brings to the table on the other hand we have uh, quite a bit of some interesting news stories i think to talk about today uh going on in the marijuana world a lot of it has to do with are we at a point where you know and i don't mean this we talked last week about what's going on with federal legislation and whether that's going to happen or not anytime soon but when you see the, the, what's happening in these articles and uh, news stories we're going to be talking about, um, it's, it's hard to not get the feeling that we're going in that direction, right? So the very first one is uh, that in North Dakota, of all places, they have advocates pushing to get adult use on the November ballot and, 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 and possibly get a vote on it. And they couldn't get it passed by committee, uh, within the state legislature, so they've gone the other route of just trying to go ahead and get it as a, ba- a ballot measure up there. And there's a lot of talk going on about how many signatures they need. And of course, you have to keep in mind, I guess in North Dakota, any number seems like a lot. And you know, fighting the the, the forces within kind of like the way Christy Noam, you know, just stomped herself all over uh, the voters' approval of medical marijuana in South Dakota. But I love the fact that even in these states and, and now you know with North Dakota, that there's groups of people who are not giving up and who are really pushing the cause. And I think it would be wonderful, you know, again, to see uh, a state, the citizens of the state approve it and see if there's another governor who's, you know, got the courage or the balls, if you will, to step in and stomp all over that program.
1: Yeah, I think that North Dakota's, I think they will pass it. Uh, you know, to your point, it's a very sparsely populated uh, state. The ballot initiative gathering of uh, signatures is probably the, the single hardest part about doing this. It's just, Finding where people you know congregate to get enough signatures in the first place. But if they get them, I'm pretty sure if this thing gets on the ballot, it's it's going to go through relatively easily. You know, I, I can't think of an issue at this point that's failing for you know once it once it actually gets on the ballot. Uh, having said that, you know how meaningful is North Dakota joining the other states that have that have come in the mix. Uh, only in so much as you can say it's another number, but in terms of does it move the needle politically? It's not really at all. But it is great for the people of that state, and it's great for the people of that state if they pass it to hopefully have access to uh, to adult use and hopefully you know not have to worry about uh, incarceration anymore. So anytime I see that, you know, I'm always uh, very very encouraged.
0: As am I. And, and and while I would agree that, you know, it's just a celebration for, for people who like to smoke marijuana, I think it's always relevant in these types of matters, uh, you know, just to keep track, because I think sometimes people have to be reminded that, you know, we talk about this all the time, it not really being a political issue. And it's important to note uh, the number of red states that are online and that are coming online uh, and even if you have a governor who you know like in south dakota who tries to get in the way i'm sure they're going to bring that again sooner than later uh there's support for it in all these places and and what's really interesting is i think you know if you look at this it, maybe it's a little bit of a microcosm of who we really are as a people right on the ground on the personal level everybody as far as we can tell wants access to legal marijuana and it's only you know when you get up into the upper reaches of government where you know uh politicians play political games uh, with these matters that you know, we really see—at uh, it, 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 least for me—really helps highlight the fact that what politicians tell us and how we vote for them and what they wind up doing aren't always the same thing. And because if they were, it would seem like given the support, everybody would be passing it.
1: Yeah, look, I mean that's a great segue into our next story, which is Virginia, where you know you'd expect that uh, Yunkin would would be the veto. I, mean, I don't know if you saw the news yesterday, but 726 bills went in front of Yunkin for signature. He signed 700 of them. He vetoed twenty six. The twenty six he vetoed were the only twenty six bills that were put forward to him by the Dems. So, if you want to say like straight across, you know, political party lines, Youngkin just wiped out every Democratic bill that was out there. Having said that, he just actually expanded uh, the, the cannabis program in in Virginia. I should at least say made it significantly easier to operate for patients for companies. And uh, I don't think anyone really you know saw that coming. The Republican legislature of um of North Carolina, or excuse me, of Virginia. You know, walked back a lot of what had been passed already, and you would have expected that Youngkin would have supported his uh, his state house, but he didn't. He, uh, he stepped out on a limb and actually, you know, supported the four companies that have licenses in that state.
0: Well, it, it, absolutely, and you know, when he was elected, when he first came in, he was he was on record as saying he didn't know if. If marijuana was going to be a good thing, but you know, I'd like to think that he you know, he got into the state house there and he took a look at the the landscape, the way uh, you know, hopefully somebody in office would look at it. He's got you know unique insights and, and access to information that the rest of us don't have, certainly. Um, and it must have made you know strong financial sense and everything else. And again, this is uh, what's significant in this state is even as he's doing this, the Republicans in the General Assembly were blocking a potential passage of an adult use law. So you, you know it, it, it. It's sometimes where they're on the same page on other issues. You know, you don't even see political parties coming out on the same page on cannabis, and I think that's because a guy like Youngkin, you're right, really sees the advantages that it could have for a state like Virginia um and says yeah why not let's 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 expand this medical this makes sense and and i like his reasoning you know politically speaking that's smart you know y- you're never going to lose by playing to the, the the sick people in the state who are looking for something to help them with their pain or improve their conditions so um either way it, it's it's nice to have yeah and just a great example of yeah, you know, once in a while you get shown the light. <laughs> Absolutely, and certainly that rings true in the strangest of places, right? And and I guess you do have to look, kind of look at it, right? But yes, that's that's a that's a great point. But I guess really topping all of this off is this information that we get out of another story here that that, that that's nothing really new, other than to just reiterate the fact how many Americans really support legal cannabis in this country right now and the fact that that, that anybody still uh, gets in the way. Now, I, I think that what was interesting is, and, and I, I'm almost sad that they kind of do this because I'm not really sure that it's necessary, but uh, you have Democrats, 72% support it, 60% of independents support it, 46% of Republicans do not support it. You know, uh, we know the Republicans like to get high. Why is that the case? I can't tell you. What I can tell you is... Uh, that I know people who I've long associated with, uh, who have come out as uh, you know Republican and po- pro-Trump, who you know when we're sitting around getting stoned doesn't really seem to matter to me, except that they'll say things like, "Yeah, this legalization of marijuana is not a good thing." Well, I can get it if I need it, but I don't know that we need the whole masses smoking it. And there's a little bit of an elitist attitude there that that really kind of bothers me, right? I mean, marijuana is what it is, and it's for everybody. Um, and, you know, you can't sit here and say that, you know, that, y- that you appreciate it while denying somebody else's r- the right to appreciate it, too.
1: That's exactly right. But, again, you know, there's there's plenty of times, I think, in, in politics on both sides where, you know, you see that, um, that attitude of, you know, it's good for me, but not for you. But I do think that, you know, if you were to look at the true numbers and say – you know, do you truly oppose this, like really oppose it? If you never use Canvas, would you want to be arrested for it? They'd be like, well, no, of course not. Like, you know, yeah, I used it when I was young, and I'm glad I didn't go to jail for it, didn't lose my federal student loans for it, or, you know, didn't um, you know, wouldn't get kicked out of school for it, whatever the case may be. You know, I think a vast majority of, of that um, uh, 54% that oppose would, would probably back off that mark if you actually asked them one or two follow-up questions. Yeah, I think it's just the... Uh, the headline number of like, are
0: you for it? Like, no, no, no. Like, it's hard on drugs. But and this is a, again a great segue into our final story here, which I don't like to talk about this kind of stuff because this is the kind of stuff you get high and then you start freaking out about, right? You know, and and then when you see a story that actually talks about it, um, you're like, wow, is that you know, was I was I right to be paranoid? And and of course, this is this you is are st- freaking out, man. Yeah, well, like, I guess so. That's that happens on the show, baby. Um, Dark money dark money prohibitionists are they out there? are we just imagining that they're out there and you know are they really out to try and you know do with money and you know with their own set of you know code words and uh, uh, you know that kind of stuff to overcome the the what seems to be the overwhelming majority of the people who want to have marijuana um, and if so who are these people right are they are they people who are genuinely concerned about health care um, are they people who, uh, you know, are objecting on religious or moral grounds? Or are they people who have a financial interest, let's say, like the alcohol industry? W- what do you know about, uh, you know, so-called dark money prohibitionists, Rob? Have you have you heard about this? Or were you aware that something like this is going on?
1: Yeah, I've definitely heard about it. And there's certainly, you know, closed-door groups that, you know, create policy like ALEC that, that are out there that are trying to, you know, shape policy the way they want. And they certainly have deep pools of capital behind them. Now, having said that, there's also plenty of guys that have very deep pockets that are very overt about the fact that they're supporting uh, prohibition. Whether you know Sheldon Adelson before he passed, you know he poured tons of money to keep uh, cannabis illegal. And there's uh, there's no shortage of other groups that have come right out and said, "Yeah, we're, we're opposed to this." So um, you know, do they need to be you know dark money? Do they need to hide in the shadows? Or they're you know perfectly comfortable saying, "You know, we're not doing this. We don't want it, and uh, we're going to put real capital into it." So do do I think it exists? Yeah, I mean I think it definitely exists. The same way I think there's dark pools of capital that exist to to fight anything that they don't want. But but do I think it's necessary anymore? Do I think it's so like so politically unpopular that people are like, oh, the only way we're going to do this is by you know doing it behind the scenes because we're, we're we fear the um, the repercussions of taking this position. I think the guys that are anti cannabis don't really care. I, I think they're you know their their response is – This is, this is the path we're going down, whether it's because they support another industry like the pharmaceutical industry or the alcohol industry, or whether it's, you know, they just believe that, you know, save the children. I've got no idea whatever they're, or they know someone that, you know, got heavy into like real drugs and then said, okay, well, you know, they still believe cannabis is a gateway drug, which by the way, there's still a ton of people that think that like, it's still, it still is out there that people believe this nonsense, but if they do, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult these days to change people's minds on anything, and, uh, you know, that, that rumor's been going around for, you know, since the Reagan years, that cannabis is a gateway drug. You know, you start with cannabis and you well, move the, on. The
0: Nixon years. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, when, when we were kids, we were, we were taught, you know, if you smoke marijuana, you'll wind up doing hard drugs. And you know that was just the, the natural thing. And and I, you know, it, it's very simple for me. Right when I talk to people about that, I just say, well, let's let's take your logic a step further. You know, then isn't really the true gateway drug to everything? Mother's breast milk, right? I mean, we all started on that, and then we went to everything else. So or sugar. Well, that too, <laughs> or sugar. Yeah. Right?
1: But 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 I mean, my, my kids. My kids would sell me out in a heartbeat oh, for yeah. sugar.
0: Everybody's kids would, you know. I mean, that even the kids that act like they wouldn't would. That's just, you know, we, we yeah. know how that goes, right? But I mean, hey, if 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 the if the logic is they smoked marijuana, then they started doing cocaine. Well, they drank mother's breast milk, and then everything else after that followed that. So come on, but, guys.
1: But but I mean, look, obviously that's the extreme example, right? Yes, I'll give a much well, more practical example and say that I know a lot of people that have done cocaine, and what I'll tell you is that almost every one of them, if you ask them. You know, what did you do before doing cocaine? It's alcohol. They, they'd be like, well, I had a couple of drinks. A buddy of mine put out some rails. So I was feeling a little loose. It wasn't like I smoked a joint and did blow. It was I was drinking and someone brought out a plate of blow, right? It's like, I think that's true of a lot of other drugs. Like I I think that your uh, inhibitions you know, decrease in a significant way. And I think if you're going to say, what is the gateway drug? I say it all the time. I'll repeat it on the show. I th- people laugh about it when I say it. Almost every really dumb thing I've done in my life has started with booze. Almost every one of them, you know, like every dumb mistake I make where I go, oh, how did I end up in that stupid position? Guess what? Drinking is what started it. And it's not, and and I'm a huge advocate for alcohol. I love booze. So I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that like I I gave it up because I made bad life decisions. I'm just going to tell you that every dumb thing I've done, you know, through my youth all the way through my twenties and thirties, if you were to pinpoint, you know, where did it start? It's probably scotch or beer. You know, it's, it's not cannabis. Like, I, I, I've done very few dumb things. Normally, like, the worst thing I was doing was, was going home and taking a nap that turned into, you know, waking up in the morning. So it's, like, this whole gateway idea, I have, like, never in my life did I ever smoke a joint and then try hard drugs my first time. I definitely, definitely, definitely tried harder drugs after drinking, like, like, wall while, while drinking, like, 100%, probably all of them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, my impression of cocaine always was that it went with alcohol and champagne and, you know, people who were like living. And probably that's because guys, these guys I knew at Michigan would have these cocaine parties where, you know, you'd have to pay money to get in. And then they'd have little champagne fountains and everything that was all set up. And it just always seemed a little too over the top and unnecessary for me. If I wanted to get high, you could just light a joint you were fine without having to go through all the rigmarole and everything, you know?
1: It's it's such an exclusive drug, isn't it? You know, it's like you get the wink or the nod and, you know, like who's in that bedroom, who's in that bathroom. It's, you know, it's very, very different. It's not, you know, social the way smoking a joint is or even, you know, breaking out a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer. It's very much either you're in the club and you get the look or you're not. Um, now, having said that, there's a period of time where I tell you that cocaine went with everything, so it wasn't it wasn't just a champagne. But uh, you know, I, I look at that as that's a drug where I know a lot of people that had a lot of issues with it. But I've known a lot of people that didn't. So you know, for the reason of how many people I know that did have issues with it, I, I take a much more jaundiced view. Like if you said, let's legalize blow. I would say yes, just to like you know, um, do it from a social uh, justice perspective. And say yes because I'd rather people have safe access to to you know drugs and still have the ability to seek rehabilitation and and not be criminalized for whatever you know decisions they make. But if you were to say from a safety perspective,
0: like do I think that you know everyone should do cocaine? definitely no. not you know right. it's, it's certainly not for no i would agree with that and i do agree you know i'm I'm generally you know libertarian when it comes to that and think that you know that all drugs should be treated not as a law enforcement issue but as a public health issue uh, and people who need treatment want treatment should be able to get that treatment and you know if somebody wants to be able to do a line of cocaine god bless but you know what they should be able to do it without freaking out that it might have fentanyl in it and you, you know what i love though larry
1: like this is something that like in, in the time we've been in the industry in the cannabis industry Here's something that I can tell you has been a massive change for me. Every conversation I used to have in like 2012, 13, 14 with people that didn't know anything about the cannabis industry, once you start talking about cannabis, inevitably somewhere in that conversation would lead to cocaine or heroin. So, I'm like, you know, it would, it would always like incrementally go to another drug. That never happens to me anymore. Like when you talk to people about the cannabis industry, it's never it's never like, "Oh, well, don't you think it can?" Like for the most part, that that issue's been disposed of because of um, uh, socialization of, of cannabis, where it's really nice. I don't have to go, oh, God, here we go again. Here's the heroin conversation. Like, no, we are talking about cannabis. We're not talking about heroin. We're not talking about MDMA. We're not talking about fentanyl. We're talking about weed. If you want to have this conversation, like intellectually honest conversation, when you talk to me about alcohol, I don't immediately jump to like, someone's like, oh, my buddy works at a brewery. I don't go, oh, did that lead to heroin? (laughs) It's it's, it's just, used to be an absurd, like, you know, sort of crossing the chasm leap that you would get. Right. I mean,
0: caffeine, anything. I mean, you know, all these other substances that are so addictive and, and, you know, cause so much more problems to humans than uh, cannabis. But yeah, you know, look, we're just preaching to the choir here. It's a... it's good to be said and it's good to hear it. And it's absolutely true. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I think you need nothing more than to see that when you have a majority of Americans who support this and, you know, whatever the percentage of Republicans is, and, and, you know, the ones who say they don't support it are lying. Just like the ones who say, I don't want it in my community. Cause I don't want my kids to smoke it. Bullshit. You know, your kids are smoking it. And I, I had the
1: conversation today in California, Larry, with someone was talking about delivery services and talking about certain like um, towns in Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach in particular, where Manhattan Beach knows it's in their community and just goes, yeah, we just made the decision we'd rather have delivery services and not have retail storefronts. Like we know it's there, we're cool that we just don't we just don't want someone to be able to walk into a shop in our town. And that's like the greatest hypocrisy. Like your your voters passed it overwhelmingly. You already know it's there, and now you're concentrating in the hands of the delivery services rather than in the hands of like someone that might be a local that would stand to benefit to hire other locals. It's it's the weirdest thing to me.
0: Well, I I completely agree with that too. You know, and, and to me, that it, uh, marijuana retail should always be about the dispensary experience. You know, I I, I have no problem with the home delivery service complementing that. And you know, when I've been out in California, and my friend says, "Oh, we don't have to go anywhere. Here, I'll make a quick phone call," and and all of a sudden they show up, and it's like ordering a pizza. And you're like, "Wow, this is really this is pretty cool." but but right you know, you have to have dispensaries and you have to keep them viable because that's where people you know, nobody tries marijuana for the first time by picking up a phone and calling for home delivery you know i mean nowadays because we have dispensaries you're going to have a lot of people whose first marijuana experience will be through a dispensary and you know what? That's good. Go in, talk to people in the dispensary if you want. Know that whatever you're getting is safe to try. And then go home and try it. If it works for you, fantastic. If not, not. But you don't have to go home and start to feel bad and say, oh, my God, you know, did I maybe smoke something that's been laced with something? Because, you know, you bought it from a dispensary. It's not laced with anything.
1: Yeah, I'm watching the retail experience. I hear it all the time from, like, the larger uh, retailers that they keep trying to say, like, no one's gotten retail and cannabis right yet. You know, there's still so much that we have to work on. I can tell you that when I walk into a lot of these dispensaries, I'm, I'm consistently impressed by the level of just how clean the store is, how nice the store is, the variety at the store. Like it's a really nice retail shopping experience, um, much better than, than they give themselves credit for, you know, like maybe, maybe you might find a more efficient way to, uh, to replenish, maybe find a more efficient way to, uh, to feature products. You know, I know in like in, in like Michigan, for instance, you know, you still can't even go in there and ask to see what's actually in the jar. You know, it's, which is a, a bit ridiculous, right. but In California, you certainly can. You know, can we? This is the, you should be able to. Yeah. You should. You can't in Illinois either, huh? You can't even see it.
0: All you can display it, but if you're a dispensary owner and you want to display it, you have to tear open a sealed package. You have to then display it. Where you can't bring it down. I can't open it, smell it, anything at all like that. And then, of course, once it's been displayed since they've opened it, it has to be disposed of it. It can no longer be sold or anything. So most groups won't do it because of really... Most people just say, screw that, you know, and they have their iPads and you can see... Yeah, that's weird to me. Here's what it looks like on an iPad. You're like, okay, cool. But
1: is it what it looks like inside that jar or inside that box? Like, you know, I I personally, when it comes to flour, there's something about bag appeal. There's something about, you know, looking, feeling, tasting, smelling, you know, like you want to be able to say... Oh, that's what I'm buying. Like, yeah, I want that. It's sort of like, it's sort of like picking your lobster out of the tank. Well,
0: it, it is. And if you think about it, I mean, look back in the day, you know, we were all just so damn happy to find anybody who would sell to us. You'd give him the money and he would just hand you a bag. That was it. You know, here you go, dude, this is what you're getting. And, uh, we didn't know any better. So we were like, okay, Fine. Uh, but now you can actually go someplace and you have a wide variety, and you can try indicas and sativas, and we all know you know about all of this now. It really does make for a great experience, and I agree. Some dispensaries um, have really, really come a long way to the point where I, I typically avoid them. But when I go into one of them, um, you know, I, I like it because you've got people there who are enthused, who come right up to you, "Can I help you?" Who you know, I can ask questions to. Um, you know, and they answer them and I, I never want to come in and say like, hi, I'm a, you know, I'm a marijuana guy. I, you know, have a podcast because I just want to hear what they have to say. I, you know, I'm curious what their opinions are on everything. You know, nobody has to impress me and I don't not to impress anybody if they, if they don't know what they're talking about, it becomes obvious pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. I usually walk in and go, don't you guys know who I am? And, and immediately they start you know, sort of like flexing on, on all the bud tenders being like, dude, look me up. Like now imagine that
0: though. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are probably people that do that.
1: Oh, there may be. I mean, so that's a silly thing, though. I can't imagine I... Seeing a musician like you know walking in and saying, "Have you heard my music?" Do you uh, do you have any like favorite dispensaries in Illinois? Anyone want to give a shout out to of saying like you know these guys? I think are just doing things
0: right. Sure, I, I really like Cureleaf. Um, you know, they started out as, as as greenhouse. Well, they didn't start as greenhouse. They they purchased greenhouse in a in a really impressive deal uh, for all parties concerned. And um, now it's called Cureleaf, and, and I and I do uh, frequent them. Well, it, it keeps changing in Illinois. I'm a medical patient. I have a medical card. and My medical card is through the Cureleaf dispensary um, that's near my office. And it used to be you had to go to that one once the pandemic kicked in and everything else got crazy. They relaxed that rule, and now, you know, theoretically, you can go to any other. Um, so Zenleaf is also right down the street from me. That's a lot closer to my house in downtown Evanston. Uh, it used to be MedMen at one point, but uh, uh, now it's Zenleaf, and I think they do a really nice job there too. And uh, the folks there are always very friendly. They get you in and out really quickly. Uh, you know, some of my folks, at, uh, my friends at Cure Leaf and Zenleaf, uh, hey to you guys and uh, listen to our podcast. And I'll give you a shout out the next time I come in to say hello. So there you go. But, um, but they do it right. The experience there is right. But I think I was talking about maybe this last week or the week before. I love when I go to the... Um, normal uh, legal conference the weekend after Memorial Day with the times when I would always be going and I fly into Denver and I rent a car and I drive out there and you can either take the route where you go over the the pass which is beautiful and really scenic and really nice on uh, a lot of curvy windy roads if you're into that kind of thing or you can take highway 70 which is beautiful but pretty much just highway but when you get off highway 70 it's about 20 or 30 miles to Aspen and you drive through all these little towns and every little town has its own two or three little small dispensaries. And those you walk into, and they still do, have it in the jars and you can look at it and they'll pick it out with the the little, you know, chopsticks for you or whatever they call it you can see it and they won't let you touch it or necessarily but you can smell it it's great stuff you want some oh here well one two three four can i have that bud there sure we'll give you that butt. Well, that's fun
1: you know that's my old hood right i used to own a hydro store right in the aspen valley uh outside of glenwood springs right by carbondale so all those places you're talking about where all my all my customers you know they help build a lot of those grows so uh there's a, a lot of good growers in that valley a lot of good growers a little further down 70 towards you know rifle and parachute uh, where they actually were, you know, um, zoned properly to to do those um, to do the cultivations, but the Aspen Valley is, um, you know, for years. I mean, go back to the uh, the Hunter S. Thompson times, and go back to like you know, the you know the, the eagle singing about just you know, like smuggling out of Telluride, right? That's uh, that part of southwestern color, uh, yeah, southwestern Colorado was like super well known for not only like being you know sort of the importers of a lot of weed, but also like a great cannabis cultivation um, tradition. Which brought us like strains like the Peabud, which ultimately I think became the um, became the OG Kush. I like, think was brought out to uh, to Florida and then brought back to California. So if you look at you know the lineage of some of these things, that part of Colorado, like in the uh, in in it's the, uh, the frying pan river or the um, uh, I can't remember what you call the valley in Aspen, is uh, you know very very well known for producing some of the best weed in the world for years and years.
0: Excellent, excellent. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll just talk about marijuana. It's got me really wanting some uh, some music side. Um, and, and the first thing we have to point out, joining the ever growing list of celebrity endorsed brands, is the estate of George Harrison.
1: Yeah, I don't get this one. I don't either. I really don't. Mm-mm. You know. And then first of all, I love Danny Harrison. I'm a huge fan. I think you know, like I, I, I'm sure the whole Harrison family is lovely. I was a huge fan of, uh, of George. A uh, huge fan, his music, huge fan, his guitar playing, uh, you know, legend, right? But do I think his name resonates as someone that you know, like if you were to say George Harrison started a um uh, a yoga brand, that I would get, you know, if you were to say like he's got an, an Eastern uh, philosophy book that is you know sort of holds true to his uh, to to his mantras, that I would get. But for the the Harrison family to put out a cannabis brand, yeah, sure. I mean, George George definitely smoked weed, and that, that was clear, but you know, was he? you know, advocating for canvas the way some of the other guys that have celebrity brands out there, the way like, you know, a, a Willie does or a burner does, or a Wiz Khalifa does those guys. It makes sense that they go, Hey, I put my, my Liberty on the line to support canvas, Seth Rogen, um, you know, Snoop, those guys all did it. Like they said, like, you know, we would teach John, their entire like um, uh, personality or, or sort of like what they built themselves up as had a, a serious marijuana bent, Dave Chappelle, those guys, like if they have brands, I get it. I'm a hundred percent behind it. But when it's someone that's like looking to cash in, cause they think that like they have a name that's recognizable and someone's trying to make cold bucks on the, uh, on the marketing. Like that. No disrespect to George. I'm just not feeling that. One. Well,
0: and, and I think, and I could be wrong, but my impression of the Beatles always was that while, you know, they had kind of a sixties style to them, that it was more pronounced through their embrace of psychedelics. And, it, psychedelics, while they never came right out and, and said, hey, man, we're all tripping on LSD, uh, they certainly put out music that, you know, if you knew what it was, you knew. And album covers that If you knew what it was, it was, right? And all of that kind of stuff. So that part was, you know, just very politely celebrated. But I think there was a conscious effort to kind of like keep quiet on their marijuana use because I don't think marijuana, you know, was really fully accepted at that time. And if you wanted to go on Ed Sullivan's show, That may not be so much, so. but you're right. I mean, there was never a point, I mean, mean, later, I mean, certainly John Lennon, in fact, uh, you know, was very big, um, you know, in coming to Ann Arbor, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, when John um, Sinclair uh, was arrested uh, for two joints and sentenced to like life in jail. He was arrested in Ann Arbor, sentenced to life in jail in Michigan, and uh, John Lennon came. Uh, with Yoko for a big concert they were having at Chrysler Arena, the basketball arena, with a couple of other acts, but certainly Lennon was the biggest name by far and gave it tons of credibility. And the end result was that Sinclair eventually got out of jail after only a few years. Um, And more importantly, uh, that helped launch the uh, Ann Arbor Hash Bash, which uh, has been an ongoing event a tradition now uh, always over April Fools weekend up yeah, there. Yeah, that's coming up
1: again or it just happened. Well, it,
0: it just happened right and yeah. uh had some friends who were up there who go up there every year. It's it, it, it's really just an amazing experience. You know, you have you, you have to see it to believe it where they go and they take over an entire hotel and for one weekend smoke up. The hotel says go for it. Um, in fact, they, they kind of, it's almost chokingly say we'd prefer you not smoke in the guest rooms because it's harder for us to clean those up. But you walk in and it's like walking into a concert. I mean, the entire place is filled with smoke. And the manager always says by, you know, by, by nine o'clock at night on Sunday, they kick you out by noon on Sunday. He says, by nine o'clock at night, we're ready to open again. We've got the smell out. We've got these big industrial fans. I'm like, you know what? I take one hit in my room. Six months later, one of my kids comes upstairs and says, Dad, did you party in your room? You know, and it's like, but they can clean out this hotel of all the smell in five hours, six hours, whatever. But God bless them. It, it's quite an experience. And they, they have the ballroom set up, with, which is just a big shopping mall. And everybody from Michigan and other places drives in with their stuff. And you can walk through, buy whatever you want and sit out in the lobby. They have live music. Uh, John Sinclair has been there in past years. Um other famous people it's, it's 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 quite an experience it's a lot of fun so um yeah i've still never been i've been to a couple of the other big ones you I know mean, i've been to the freedom rally in boston
1: multiple times i've been to you know like the smokeouts in uh, in golden gate park so but the, the Ann Arbor hash bash has always been one that i, I think I'd, at some point I'd like to check out and obviously tons of like you know high times cannabis cups but uh but it's amazing. It's amazing
0: the guys that did it. Well, let's let's mark it down. We'll we'll get the three of us out there. You, me, and Dan. We'll go do a live remote from Hash Bash in Ann Arbor. That that could be the call. What April first, twenty twenty three, guys, be ready to roll. Well, that's uh, I think
1: you need, need to convince my wife first. But uh, if you can get her on board, <laughs> then uh, it's
0: business. <laughs> it's business. Look, you have to travel on business. You have to travel if it's Ann Arbor for Hash Bash. It is what it is. I, you know I, what? Can I tell you? Yeah. Um, so, 50 years ago, young Bob Ace Weir uh, comes out with his first solo album, which, as we have said, was basically a Grateful Dead album, but the songs were all basically written by him, and uh, he he got the guys in the band to come in and play with him. What do you know about this nickname, Ace? I, I know that, you know,
1: I always commonly think of Bobby as the kid, you know? Like, what I think about what his nicknames were, but I also know that, you know, like when I was younger, it was always referred to as Bobby Ace Weir, you know, like, so I think he kind of kept both nicknames where, where that nickname came from. That's one of those questions that we've had a couple of guests on recently that I'm, you know, I'm sure would, would absolutely know, you know, where it came from. But, you know, uh, I think Dan pointed out to us that it was uh, engraved on the fret of one of his guitars. And certainly, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of legend you can pull up uh, about the fact that he was considered, you know, called himself Ace and that, you know, it was in many ways sort of a self-titled uh, nickname for the album, you know, essentially calling, you know, his album after himself, but uh, that's that's all I really know, but I'd love to know more about it.
0: Yeah, it, it, it is kind of fun, and, you know, I, I think it kind of fit his personality at the time, you know, and, and, and you know, we, anybody who ever saw... Bob in the eighties, you know, doing not fade away and standing on that front of that stage. And my love is bigger than a Cadillac and, you know, screaming and yelling and, and hooting and hollering. And, and that's always the way he was. And, and, and his energy, you know, really helped fuel the crowd. And, you know, whereas Jerry was just, we all love Jerry, but, you know, if Jerry raised an eyebrow, the crowd kind of went crazy. Bobby was, you know, never stopped moving to some, in some respects. Right. And um,
1: yeah, you had the throwing stones jam and the sugar mag jam where he always, you know, came to the front of the stage and did the same little number
0: the right the whoops and the and the hollers and that's why i love that that first song the greatest story ever told that we started off with because he's you know he's got that same little scream that he you know that he just lets loose with and you know sure he's he's celebrating and and that's a great tune like i say you know, that was the greatest story was you know most of the years i went that was you know typically you know uh, in the in the show opener, or a birth of greatest story or a, a half-step greatest story or something like that but you know inevitably you'd see it there um and it was a lot of fun, and, and it's, it's big on Europe 72. In fact, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's the very first song they open with the very first night in London at Wembley Pool. Uh, they come out and they open with uh, Greatest Story. And, um, yeah, you know, uh, Europe, sev- Europe 72 is like a sounding board for this entire album.
1: Yeah, and then in the 80s, you know, you could be pretty sure that if they were opening with Touch, you'd probably get a Greatest Story afterwards. Or if they open with a Greatest Story, oftentimes you get a Sugary afterwards. So you know there was you know some pretty decent combinations, not like an you know an estimated eyes or a scarlet fire, but you know there was definitely paired up with some other songs that kind of just try to keep the enthusiasm going coming out of the gate
0: and uh, well, that's true and 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 this is a tune uh, on which uh whatever your feelings about Donna might be, typically, you know on this song, her her vocals add to the tune and uh, you know really kind of help supplement Bobby a little bit. and uh, I enjoy that.
1: yeah, and there's so many other great songs on this, and the other thing I think it's worth pointing out is you know most of the songs were uh were written by Weir and barlow but you know hunter definitely helped out on a couple of them like playing in the band he was certainly a part of so it's uh, a question of which ones and i think the other thing that's interesting is i can't think of any like songs off of the garcia album that ended up making it onto a grateful dead album later whereas mexicali blues ended up on skeletons from the closet right so you exactly. know they, they really did eventually claim it as a grateful dead song instead of as a bobby tune
0: right and and you know well i mean i guess you know like I, a lot of them were on reckoning and stuff like that too but yeah on unofficial stuff that they put out but uh, absolutely um, And I think that Right, like studio tracks yeah, I, I think I think you're right I think that for all intents and purposes They did become Grateful Dead tunes So, you know, even more important uh, You know, to really shout out to Bobby um, You know, for, for getting these tunes out there Now, the second uh, clip we have for today what, what I really like about this entire album Is I was trying to pick the clips I wanted to listen to some of these songs have just tremendous tremendous lyrics and i know that's barlow some of it is hunter um black-throated wind me is just full of some of my all-time favorite favorite grateful dead lyrics and i you know we, we just can't without playing the whole song there's no way to touch on all of them um but you know everything like uh You know, plunging like stones from a slingshot on Mars and, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff is just, I mean, these are really deep descriptive lyrics that, you know, when you hear it, even if you're, you know, stoned and you're listening to it, you have to stop and think about that for a minute. What did he just say?
1: Did you like the original or do you like the, um, the when they came back and changed all the lyrics uh, after 1990? Were you more a fan of the uh, of the rewrite, or are you more of a fan of the original? I am
0: more a fan of the original. I mean, look, I was just happy he was playing it, you know, and that and, and that we were able to, uh, you know, able to hear it. But you know, I mean, there's a lot of those songs, like what a saint saint of circumstance has. It's you know, tonight I crossed the line, last station on the line. There was always it always seemed like on a lot of his tunes, you know, he was trying to work them out as he went along and. You know, when he went, he wasn't obviously screwing around like on trucking, and, you know, ever since she went and had her sex changed, which to me uh, was always a crime because Living on Reds, Vitamin C, and Cocaine is just such a perfect line for that song. It's such a descriptive lyrical line, but but Black Throated Wind is just full of them. So here, Dan, go ahead and play, please, the, the clip we have from that. Now, what's to be found from racing around? your okay. am
1: I forgot, that's a hometown song for you, Larry. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a St.
0: Louis song. Well, that that was another one of those uh, uh, lyrics that I love. I love St. Louis, City of the Blues. But ultimately, I went with this last part because, hey, I love the music. I love the horns. I love how all of that mixes in so well. And I just love that lyrical line about capture a glance make it a dance looking at you looking at me you know it's just like anybody who ever like you know thought they were getting the hots for a girl and sit there looking at her but don't want them to look at you and you know he just captures that moment i love that part of that song
1: it's it's a great lost love song yep you know it's a you know there's a couple i mean obviously looks like looks like rain has a fair amount of lost love uh on this album as well yep but uh but you know between the two
0: I'd take black throated like 99 times out of 100 yeah no, I love that song and and like I say I was just happy when they brought it back and yeah you know it would always be fun to have it as as, as it, it was original but no loss for me um you know just it, it's nice because it gave Bobby you know kind of like another slow tune to play and and we're not going to feature looks like rain today although we easily could because it's a, so great but um you know the thing about looks like rain that I think was important for Bobby was it gave him that first set ballad. You know, Jerry had tons of first set ballads, Candyman and Loser and uh, a whole bunches of them. And and, Sugary, Althea. Right. You know, and now Bobby had, you know, looks like rain. And I mean, he, you know, for a while he played it a lot. It was getting played almost every concert, every other concert on Europe 72. It shows up in almost every concert on the album. Jerry plays pedal steel and the first the, the the second night of europe 72 uh in london they played it and jerry played pedal steel and apparently it was the only time on the entire tour that he played the pedal steel but they hadn't played pedal steel for um uh looks like rain i think it's uh, april 8th 72 the second night in london um you know and, and just with all those great musicians and instruments it's just uh um, it's really fun. But now we have to move on to this song we've been teasing, which is Bob Weir comes out with an album, eight tunes, seven of them making into the regular Grateful Dead playlist. Yeah, Black Throated Wind was, was dropped for a while and, and had to come back. But every single one of these other ones, Greatest Story, Playing in the Band, Looks Like Rain, Mexicali, One More Saturday Night, Cassidy, those songs never dropped out of the out of the rotation of of Grateful Dead songs. And uh, it's just amazing. So everybody says, "Well, what about the eighth song? Why didn't the eighth song make it on there?" Um, th- th- go ahead and play it, Dan for a minute, and then we'll then we'll come back and talk mm-hmm. about it. a nice beat to it, you know. I don't know how I would have felt it, you know, in nineteen eighty-five if all of a sudden they dipped into it in the first set, but probably, you know, would have would have enjoyed it. I and, and again, it's just that unbridled enthusiasm, right? Uh look out cause here comes some free advice. I just I love that. It's
1: it's a great bar piano song and it's got some great lyrics. And I've always been a, a big fan of you got a deep six your your wristwatch. Yep. But uh you know I was always surprised they didn't play that one or at least didn't break it out a couple of times. Just to, you know, once in a while, just put it back in the rotation. But, you know, there's I, I can think of a lot of songs that um, that I would prefer they not play. And if they slip that one to the rotation, I'd be perfectly happy with it, uh, especially as like I, I, a mellow first set Bobby tune.
0: For sure. And, and, and I'm not aware of it ever having been played by the Grateful Dead. However, uh, we did find a clip that we're not going to play right now. But on the show notes, you'll be able to find the, uh, the link to the clip. Uh, They just did, uh, uh, Bob and Wolf Brothers and those guys uh, at Radio City Music Hall, a 50th anniversary uh, celebration of Ace. And uh, he brought out this woman who's just a wonderful singer, and I'm sorry I can't remember her name, to sing sing this song with him. But what's really funny is he's got about a three-minute introductory rap you know as only Bobby can do where he kind of lays out with this you know we were we we needed a song to fill out the album and we only had another day or two in the recording studio and you know Barlow was working hard and we were trying to get something done and you know he gave this to me and you know we said we'd kind of make it work and Barlow's version of it is uh, I gave him the first set of the lyrics and he hated it, so I gave him this and I thought these were worse than the first set just to pimp him, but, you know, Bobby made something out of it and threw it on the album, um, so, but he does tell that story very well, so you go to the show notes um, and, uh, and and find the link and you can check that out um, but I thought it sounded really good when they played it, you know, 50 years later, and certainly this woman's uh, vocals uh, helped him out tremendously um, but he picked right up with it and played it like he played it yesterday. So good for him.
1: You know, what's always surprised me about this album is that you know, obviously, it's a big decision where to slot your songs. But you'd think that one more Saturday Night would be the final song of the second side, you know, instead of putting Cassidy right. in that slot. So it's, it yep. just makes sense to me to say, okay, let's let's finish with a bang. Uh, and I always thought, you know, Saturday Night was kind of was kind of that. But on the other side, I wonder how much influence Barlow had because you know, I, I had a chance to ask him personally about twenty years ago. Of all the songs you've written, which one are you are you most proud of? And without skipping a beat, just Cassidy, just instantaneously Cassidy. So I don't know if Barlow is like, hey man, I don't think that's the one I want. You know, finishing this thing. And, up.
0: and that could be. We're going to talk about Cassidy in a minute. And spoiler alert, that's going to be the uh, the clip we're going to play on our way out today because it's, it, it. Any of these tunes are great, but you know, to me, um, in in the in the canon of Bob Weir musical uh, accomplishments. Uh, Cassidy certainly has to be right up there uh, right near the top in terms of uh, both the melody and, and the lyrics and the story that he tells and, and we'll get into that in a minute again but you know One More Saturday Night is I I, I love that song in the same way that I like um, Sample in a Jar from Fish right it's like just a, a you know just a, a rock and roll tune they just pick it up they just jam through it there's not a lot of exterior jamming to it or anything like that. Um it's just a peppy little number and you know Bobby, you know, clearly liked it. And I and after hearing him scream and screech on that song, it's a miracle that he didn't blow out his voice years ago. Um, you know, we would always wonder how he could get away with it at the end. When, you know, that one more Saturday night. Yell. Right. Yell. Hey Yell. another Saturday yeah. night. Dun 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 hey not yeah. right. Yeah, just like whoa. But now what's interesting, at least for us Is we only heard it on Saturday nights, but if you saw a Saturday night show, you knew you were going to get it. It was guaranteed, just like Samson on a Sunday. Yep. Reckon, reckon, reckon it's this being a Sunday. But what I so on the one hand, right, that could kind of be a little bit of a a killjoy if they get to the end of the show and you're like, oh, well, they haven't played it. So we all know the encore is going to be one more Saturday night. And what was always fun on those rare occasions? Once we heard him close the show with it, which was like, ooh, now, now what will they play for the encore? Um, and then uh, one night we went in on a Saturday night. He actually opened with it, and to me, that's I mean, that's always part of the fun of the Grateful Dead, anyway. But I appreciated the song a lot more when I wasn't associating with it. Okay, it's time to go home. You know, when when you're like, oh, good, we can jam on this. And we still have a little bit left to go. And and on Europe '72, he plays in almost every single show. So at that point in time, it clearly was not limited uh, to only being played on Saturday nights, which might have you know driven the Europeans crazy. Who knows?
1: But you think know, how much like less material they had at that time? You know, they it was like half the songs in their canon weren't written yet. So it's you know, you're, you're recycling stuff a lot faster.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 the truth is, I I really do believe that Europe '72 was you know their time to really, as a band, work all of these tunes out. I mean, some of them show up earlier than that playing in the band. They were playing live back in uh, in 71 for a while, certainly. Um, and uh, most of these others, I think, they weren't playing until at or around the time the album came out. But, you know, in, in the uh, Europe 72 you know, liner notes and all the stuff, you know, one of the the songs that they consistently talk about is playing in the band and how, if you listen to it at the very, you know, the very first show of the tour versus the version they play the very last show of the tour, you can really see how after basically playing it 18, 19 times out of 20 shows, they had really developed it and worked it into the framework that, you know, we more or less all, you know, very clearly recognize today. Yeah,
1: definitely. And it's funny, because like, you know, obviously for, for me, I only got to see a handful of songs, maybe 25, 30 songs get developed from the time that when they broke them out for the first time, you know, like for me, like getting to see so many roads, I saw the first one ever played and then saw the next like 12 or 13 in a row that were played and just watching the progression of that song and how it improved. And, and again, speaking to lyric changes, how many times Garcia was still like fiddling around with the lyrics and still not really, I mean, all the way until the end, he hadn't decided what the lyrics of so many were, but you know, that's true of that song. certainly true of days between. It was certainly true of uh of, of a handful of others we actually really got to see them develop from you know, when they were first played. But that, like, when I saw it, you might get it every fifth night. You know, it wasn't, there, there was never a, a situation where they are playing it over and over. Whereas with Fish, you know, going back to, to Fish, in 1990, 91, 92, like, I can almost tell you, like, you know, every second show they're going to play, uh, antelope, you know, like it used to be every night they, they switched off between you enjoy myself and Mike song for, for the trampoline. Right. You knew every night you're going to get one or the other kind of like when you went to see Garcia band, you knew it was going to be, um, a deal or let's spend the night together to close the first set. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's completely different when you see a band that's playing the same songs, even if it's in different order than when you actually have a band that's got a big enough canon that they, okay, like I don't have to repeat for five, six, seven shows. And that's you know when I started seeing the Grateful Dead. they were already clearly at that point that oh you know, yeah I, I might not see a song again for twenty shows if it's one that they were pulling out once in a
0: while, right? Which which was both fascinating about them and, and what you know compelled us all to go back because you just never knew, but at the same time maddening, right? Um, you know, Rob Bleetstein. I mean, it's hard to believe that there was only one morning due in all of nineteen seventy eight. I mean, we complain about oh they you know, play Black Peter or warfront and I wanted my due. But if you went on tour with the dead, you were gonna get a due in the in the eighties, you know, every fourth or fifth night, you know, probably pretty regularly. Um and, and, and really up through the end. Yeah, cheers to that. You know, but that's just the way they are and, and sometimes this, you know, a song falls out of the, the repertoire for a while and then boom, one night there you are. And you know, Phil Lesh steps up and you think he's singing Tom, you think he's singing Tom thumb blues. And the next thing you know, it's box of rain. And you're like, son of a bitch.
1: Yeah. I mean like a standing on the moon eluded me for like 30 straight shows. I couldn't like I, I'd either be the night after or the night before, but I missed the standing so many times to the point where I was like, am I ever going to catch a standing? Um, it was infuriating, but you know, again, it makes it that much better when you get them. Yeah.
0: High time was my song. I didn't see high time to like my 80th show every time i would oh they just played it the night before oh they just played it the night after you left my buddies would joke about it they're like oh yeah if you want to see high time michigan's not going to be there on friday night go home he's going home they're going to play and then son of a bitch you know oh yeah they played high time man it was awesome so finally for my buddy alex uh uh we were in um las vegas for his uh bachelor party in 1992 And the second or the third night, I don't remember which one it was, in the second set, somewhere along the way, you know, I was with my buddy. We're all hanging out. One guy goes, where's Michigan? Where's Michigan? They're playing high time. And all of a sudden, there it was. You know, I was like, okay. Then I saw him, you know, a month later in Chicago, boom, high time. Play again. Yeah, Yeah. then I caught it like four times in five shows or whatever. But I, I got one relatively early, 328.90,
1: I think, was my first high time at the Nassau Coliseum. That legendary run that included the Brantford night, the next night, yeah. But uh, the first set of the uh, the three twenty eight was a was a high time. That
0: was, was great. A, you know, but you, you never, I never caught a Casey Jones. I was telling Bleachstein that last week. He couldn't believe it. I'm like. I can't believe it. In the 80s, it it just didn't get played very much. And even in the 90s, I mean, maybe once a year, twice a year, maybe. And, you know, they seem to have a a liking to do it. I know they did it at Merriweather Post once in the 80s. And I think they did it at uh, uh, RFK once in the 80s. Um, But, yeah, you know, in in 84, I was like on, you know, almost the entire tour and, and whatever show I missed, they played it that night. I, I, I never heard uh, uh, Casey Jones live until uh, the the Terrapin family reunion in 2002 at Alpine Valley. The first night they closed the first set with Casey Jones. And I was like, oh, my God, here's Casey Jones.
1: That's funny. Yeah, I was, I was a little upset that I missed the breakout at RFK when it did the, the big train whistle noises and stuff. But, you know, but I saw Vegas where they did the same thing where you actually, you know, heard, you know, Mickey pulling the air horn uh, for, for all the fanfare. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like there's a lot of other songs that I, I got to see breakouts of. You know, I I wasn't super bummed I missed uh, the, the breakout of, of Casey Jones. I was much happier that I got to see like, like the breakout of Here Comes Sunshine.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, Here Comes Sunshine was great. When they finally got it around, brought it to Chicago, we were all just it's like they're gonna play it, they're gonna play it, they have to play it. Of course they're gonna play it. Lights go out, boom, doom, doo doo doom. We're like, yes. You know, and that was the best part about the dead, right? I mean, that was what, 92 or 93? I think that's right. I think it was December of
1: 92 when they they brought back out in Tempe, Arizona.
0: So, you know, right at that point, 90, you know, I'd I'd been seeing them for over 10 years. And it's it's great to be able to see a band for over 10 years and go one night. And there, I remember when they broke out loose Lucy. I wasn't at the breakout, but I was there a few nights later on that tour in uh, uh, Kansas City. 314.90. In fact, a whole group of us. We went to Kansas City just because we were hoping we'd catch a loose Lucy, and we caught it. So, you know, it was, it was that's, to tell people, that's what you had to do. If you wanted to catch a tune, you know, you had to be willing to stay an extra night, drive an extra hundred miles, you know, go to one more show. Skip class. (laughs) Skip class. No, Dad, really, I'm going to graduate, I promise. Don't worry. Lie to your parents. Absolutely. Whatever it took. You know, which was just fine until once when my, Uh, one of my father's uh, brother-in-laws passed away and and we were out in Colorado at Red Rocks. And uh, I called to check in on the folks, just, hey, how's everybody? Oh, good. Well, your your, your uncle passed away up in Chicago there. Um, So we assume you'll just drive down from Ann Arbor and meet us there for the funeral. And I'm like, well, about that, I'm kind of out here in Morrison, Colorado. So, uh, but I'll be home soon. You know, give my best to my aunt and my cousins. And, you know. That goes over like like a lead balloon with family. Yeah, very much so. Let me tell you. Very, very much so.
1: So let's finish this up with uh with some Cassidy action. Uh, again, you know, probably probably one of my two favorite songs. Definitely one of my two favorite Bobby songs in the first set. Uh, and definitely one of the jams I'd always look forward to. That and Jack Straw, I think, were my, my two favorites in the first set for Bobby. And
0: what I love about Cassidy is, of course, everybody would argue who's Cassidy. And now, you know, the official story is that it was Rex Jackson and I, I, Law. Eileen, Law's, I uh, Eileen Law's daughter Cassidy. But he drops references in there to Neil, right? Lost Now in the Country Miles in his Cadillac. And, you know, he definitely makes references to Neil Cassidy in there. So, but, but I, but yeah, but, but all of those are so great. And in fact, I'll, I'll give a shout out to a, a good friend of the show, Bob Hoban, uh, who named his daughter Cassidy for this song. And, uh, you know, I have friends that have done that. And, the, you know, if you're going to name your kid for a, a Grateful Dead song, this is a good one to do it. And I think probably goes over a lot better than August West. So, uh, yeah I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. You know, yeah. But uh but this is a great tune and and it was always very much fun to hear in concert. Typically a first set song. You know, just beautiful and 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 really a great way I think uh to duck out today. So um Another good show, Rob. Uh, you, you made it. I'm I'm impressed that uh, you know scratchy throat and all. You, you you know that that's true deadhead spirit. Like no, Mom, really. I'm I'm good enough to go to the show tonight. I'm I'm gonna go. I'm going to the show, honey. You're so sick. No, well, no, I'll be fine. Lots of vitamin C. Lots of water. I can power it out. I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's amazing what you know. However many uh, mics of acid will uh, get you up and moving really, really quick no matter what's going through your yeah. system
1: well what, what i'll tell you is that my wife always teases me saying that guys always pretend they're sick i think she even has like a a, uh, a tea towel that says um i thought i was dying but it was just a headache with like a picture of a guy like this on it <laughs> you know it's it's the, the classic like lack of threshold for pain but i can tell you like for me if i know i've got to work i've got a huge schedule i'd rather just shut it down get the sleep i need and uh and get ready to to get back in the game Amen, so, brother um this, this is it for me today, so I'm going back to the, uh, the solitude of my bedroom. But thank you for uh, for spending you know an hour-plus with me today, and thanks out there, everyone in the audience, and hopefully I'll be rested and uh, revived by the time I come back next week.
0: Beautiful. And next week we have a guest, Lynette Shaw, from the Marin Alliance for Medical Marijuana. Uh, so that should be very, very interesting.
1: I'm so stoked about that. I mean, Lynette is as OG as they come. Like The war stories we're going to get from Lynette, from being there like day one, like Dennis prone days of, of changing laws in 96 and all everything it took to get there. There's a, like her and Valerie Carell, I think are the two people I hold out there as like the, the absolute warriors of the early days, of the cannabis industry on the, you know, of, of the females in Northern California. So I am super stoked to have Lynette on the show. Yeah.
0: I think it's going to be great. And uh, I look forward to having a chance to talk with her and hear her stories. Um, and, you know, look, we're, we're nothing if we're not, uh, you know, supporting the, uh, uh, women-owned businesses in cannabis and opportunities for women in this industry, and they have to be a part of it. And, and in fact, it's not even a question of half. Hey, people like Lynette are, you know, probably, you know, it, it, they're probably the ones deciding whether some men belong in the industry.
1: I agree. I mean, like, I, I, I such a huge debt of gratitude to Lynette for everything that she did for all of us. So, I mean, like the, yep, like I, I am just so fired up. There's certain people that, that made this industry, shaped this industry, that you know really kicked it off the uh, the ground. But for some of those people, and there's you know a handful, and we've had luckily we've had a few of them on the show. But it is like it's such an honor when you get someone that put their liberty on the line and changed the world, like truly changed the world.
0: Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I absolutely agree. One other thing that I'm just going to throw in here that kind of sounds mundane and next to that, and and something that you and I did not talk about today, and we're going to talk about next week, I'm making a point of that, is this whole little kerfuffle last week when the announcement came out that Dead & Company was done at the end of 2022, only to have it like retracted almost immediately. And of course, it's right at the same time that they're releasing their their summer tour dates. And so uh, we're going to hold off. I think Mickey had tweeted out, or Billy tweeted out, like, news to me, you know? Bobby did. Bobby said news to me and then Billy tweeted out oh good I'm glad I didn't want to be the only one who hadn't heard or something like that but th- th- that, th- <laughs> that's, that's all interesting stuff so we'll, we will talk about that next week and about their upcoming tour but they, they have announced a summer tour and Company for people who were we're wondering, so uh uh be prepared to enjoy that and so is Phil. Phil oh, keeps God. dropping dates. All
1: over you know, we we're we we're getting lots of Grateful Dead music coming up this year with original band members. So on top Incredible of everything else that's happening. Phil is doing. Uh, you know, there's a great little festival that was just out here in LA last week as well. You know, that was all Grateful Dead that there you are know, a lot of a lot of bands. D S O was there, David Gans was there. So it's, you know, the, the celebration of the Grateful Dead's music. I mean, there's still full festivals dedicated to nothing but playing Grateful Dead this music. This year we have the... So uh, I'm excited this for This we have the new
0: Sacred Rose Festival in Chicago. Brand new, never happened before. You're going to be out at the uh, soccer stadium at the end of August. Phil Lesh and Friends, headliner the first night, you know. So it, it's just going to be a great week, and we're looking forward to that, too.
1: Let's do this. Let's get healthy and get back and start seeing some music.
0: Amen, brother. So, Rob, thank you, as always. All right, man. See you next week. You got it. feel better. To all all of our other listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us. And now, uh, as we let you go, please enjoy Cassidy from Ace, which is 50 years old this week. And uh, we hope that you will enjoy it. Be safe, have fun, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone.